everyone. I'm Abby Feeder, life and fertility coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Check. This show is all about the road to parenthood, which is almost never the same, and our guests' professional success along the way. I am so excited for you to hear today's episode with Erica Shelton Kodish. This woman is the definition of a badass. She has willed so many miracles into her life from family to career to locations to jobs to some of the incredible people she's worked with and of course her sweet family so i can't wait for you to hear all the nuggets she has to share here's erica welcome erica we are so happy to have you thank you so much for being here Thank you for having me. Not everybody can see you, but you look beautiful. And it was just your birthday and she's about to go to Cabo. So no complaints from Erica today. So you had an interesting winding path to parenthood, like most of my guests. And you also have a beautiful career and you had an interesting and windy path to that career. So why don't we start there? You're a writer and a showrunner. And did you always want to be a writer? I absolutely did. I think from the time that I was like 12, that idea was sort of placed into my head by a teacher, Mrs. Lasky, if she's still out there somewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. She had pulled me aside after class and said, you know, you should do this after reading something that I'd written. And that seed was planted. And so by the time I graduated high school, I wanted to move to Los Angeles, become a TV writer. It was like that was going to be the move. And it took many iterations and a long journey to get there, but eventually I did. Was this in Detroit where you grew up? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I grew up in Detroit. So uh-huh. this was in Detroit. So Miss Lasky in Detroit, if you happen to be there, give us a little message on Instagram. I'm sure you're big into Instagram <laughs> and let us know. But this is so off topic, but I just love when like a teacher says you can and you can, and it just gives you that idea to run with. I think it's so important to mention. Yeah. Same with like mentorship, because I know you I've been a mentor to many other writers and just telling them that they can is so important. But anyway, you moved to LA and I assume what you wrote for Miss Lasky wasn't TV. So how did you know that that was what was your passion? I was very much a sort of latchkey kid where came home and turned on the TV and that was the babysitter. There's a whole generation of us who know that life very well. So TV was very much a part of my life and upbringing. And I was named after Erica Kane from all my children. <gasps> I never um, knew that. That's amazing. I love yes. it. So TV always played a prominent role in my life. And again, it's sort of going back to teachers and educational opportunities because I went to a high school in the suburbs of Detroit that had a television studio. And the teacher there is someone who encouraged me or allowed me to take it like twice. And so that's when I sort of started thinking about television writing, or at least thinking about it a lot more seriously. And then being inspired by some of the writing that I saw on television and recognizing that people actually do that for a living. I think that was the thing for me, like, that's it. That's what I want to do. And you just knew. So when you entered, because you went to Northwestern, right? I did. I went to Northwestern undergrad. Yeah. And did you know, did you go with the intention of studying? Because I know they have a great program. Did you study writing? Did you, you, were you like already on that track? My story is a little unique because I know that that's kind of rare for people to make a decision about what they want to do when they're a kid. 
because I, now that I have kids and they're faced with the question of what do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, there's, there's some kind of ridiculous <laughs> answers, and, but I was someone who I, that's what I wanted to do. And I stuck with it. I was just that stubborn, like, no, this is what I'm going to do. So I wanted to move to Los Angeles and go directly from high school to writing for TV. I, even though I right. had no idea how one does that. Yeah. <laughs> I just needed to see where it happens. And so I wanted to be here. But my dad did not let me do that. There was no way he was going to let me go move to Los Angeles. And the furthest I could get was Chicago or Evanston at Northwestern. And they had a fantastic radio television film program and still do. And so I studied television film there. And it was because it's an undergraduate program. It wasn't just writing. It was the whole gambit. But it provided a real great training ground, not only for television and film, but just in terms of fantastic education and community. And I loved it. And so it kind of really launched me into really taking this seriously as, you know, being a a TV writer. Was there any feeling of otherness for you as a woman and as a Black woman? I mean, in college, obviously, I want to get into later in life too, but were you ever made to feel like this might not happen for you for those reasons? I don't know that I equated it just to the fact that I was a woman of color, that it may not happen. I, I, all I knew is that it was just really hard. But I think that that is true for anyone in this business. It's just hard. Were there unique challenges because I was a woman and a woman of color? Absolutely. But I think it's so rare that you hear of someone that had an easy time, you know, and so it was just, it was just difficult. But yes, I definitely felt some otherness and even at Northwestern, I mean, it was shocking. And because mm-hmm. it's the first time you're away from home, you're away from your community, and you get to see people from all these different parts of the country and different socioeconomic backgrounds, a lot of internationals. It was just a different world. Mm-hmm. And so you start to see how your background sort of differed from some of the other students. And it was a real eye opener for me. Mm-hmm. I went to school thinking that I'd gone to public school. I had some private school, but it was brief because the financial situation was up and down with my dad and my family. And so I had gone to school thinking that I had a great education. I had a great foundation. And then when I started to compare myself to some of the other students who had been private school or gone to boarding school and come from very privileged backgrounds, it was an eye-opener in that, like, oh, girlfriend, you, you yeah, know, the right. education you thought you got. Right. I felt honestly behind and like I hadn't gotten quite a fair shake. Mm. Did you feel uh, that again when you moved then to LA? Because I think LA is made up of a lot of people who were the big fish in the small pond and then they moved to LA and they become the small fish in the big pond. Yeah, I think more of that happened definitely in LA. And Northwestern was a very nurturing environment. One of the things that I now know about Northwestern is that they really made a solid attempt to take care of students and to make them feel like they're part of a community. 
And I can say that because I've now been to other schools and seen and experienced these other environments and know that that wasn't always the case. And I think that was doubly true in LA at USC. It wasn't the same sort of nurturing, community building, that sort of thing. So truly were just out there on your own and you felt it. Okay. So then you leave. Did you go to USC after Northwestern? Yes, I did. I worked in Chicago for about a year and working in television and television news and that kind of thing. But always knowing in the back of my mind that I was going to try and get to LA, I just had two nickels to rub together. So just didn't know how I was going to do that. But I got into USC and I didn't have any money and didn't know how I was going to pay for it. So I just called the school and spoke to the dean and said, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. I just have no resources. I have no money. And she said, well, there's a woman who is giving a scholarship to two women in the film school. It's open to anyone in the entire school. So in animation and producing and the directing and the writing program, you can apply. And I said, okay, I'll apply. And mm. I got the scholarship. Wow. So it was kind of one of those things where it's like, today, had I been faced with that problem, there's no way I would just call the school and be like, I can't pay for this. How am I going to do this? You Isn't know? that crazy? The older we get, it's interesting. It's like more in our rational mind, we think we should be fearless. And in the reality, we only we actually often show more fear. It's so interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So because I was just dumb enough, Like, okay, I guess I'll do that. It worked out. I like to say you were resourceful, not dumb (laughs) enough. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Let's go that route. Yeah. Okay. So that brought you to LA. And then how soon after leaving USC did you work? (laughs) That was another lesson where it took years. And one of my professors at USC had said, give yourself five to eight years to really break into the industry. And it took every bit of that. And meanwhile, I'm circling back to fertility and, Mm -hmm. you know, the clock is ticking. Uh (laughs) And And you're you're single at this time? I'm very single and really just focused on my career. Right. And in some ways, it felt like life is on hold until this gets started. So as the years start to tick by... You know, you start to feel like, wow, like, what am I doing? And you get yourself into a situation where when you finally do get your career off the ground and that sort of thing, and then have to turn to gaining a relationship and, you know, family and all that sort of thing, it's, you feel a little behind. Yeah. I do remember even feeling on my 30th birthday, I think it was, which like now I'm like 30th, that was still a baby, but... (laughs) I think in my mom, we were talking about something and she was like, you know, life's going to pass you by. And that just stuck with me. And my mother, nobody really put pressure on me in terms of timing. But in the entertainment business, when you're so focused on just that success, it's true that so much of life does pass you by. And you think you don't care because you're like, but I'm going for what I want. And then all of a sudden, you're at the fertility clinic. I mean, there's a lot of steps between, (laughs) but you know... (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So you got your foot into some doors. Were you doing any odd jobs while you were waiting to? Oh, oh yeah. Well, what did you do? I mean, I was an assistant after I graduated from USC. I I was an assistant for a 
producing director who had a production company. And that was really, I feel like it was my PhD into the internet yeah. because that's where you, I really learned how things worked. And then, of course, trying to write on the side. I left with his blessing because the hours were so long. I had so many scripts to read on the weekend that I wasn't doing a lot of writing because my spare time was so limited that I left with his blessing and took awful jobs. I was at a small company that did the trailers for movies. They, they didn't like make trailers. They just they programmed the trailers. Like, so the trailers were going to, I know that's not even true either. It's, <laughs> let me start over. It, what they did is they were a company that would send people out to check to make sure the trailers that should be running were running in the theaters. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I never even thought that of that job existing. Yeah, exactly. It was, oh, wow. you know, okay. and then the studios would receive reports about what trailers were running, if there were a problem with the trailer, because, you know, it's sort of like if your commercial doesn't run. Right, right. You paid for it and it didn't run, that, that's a problem. That's all that company sort of did. It did a lot of like sort of marketing data and making sure that things were running as they should and kind of responses and things like that. Wow. Okay. And yeah. then how did you finally get into a writing room? So the producing director that I had worked for, he remained a mentor of mine. And I'd written a script. I wrote mm. a shield spec. And he was the one that kept calling agents like, you got to read, you got a reader, you got a reader, you got a reader. And it was actually his persistence that one agent was like, I got to read her just to get you to stop That's calling right. me. So I then got signed with an agent um, and then got hired as a writer's assistant on CSI New York with a guaranteed script. And I ended up co-writing two scripts on that first season of the show. And that sort of launched Amazing. Amazing. Mm -hmm. By the way, you know, my first acting job ever was on All My Children. I feel like connected. What? Yes. And my mom was like my mom's favorite soap. And then my big first acting job in LA was on CSI New York. Just saying. Really? Yeah. My wedding dress killed me from formaldehyde poisoning. We'll get into that another time. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I feel like so connected to you from those two. Right. Okay. So it's funny because I think when I hear your story, I see your vision for the end picture and not all the stuff in between. And your fertility journey is similar in some ways. And I think all kinds of women are on the journeys and people are on the journeys that we went on through infertility. But there are so many type A's who can power through a career path and can not listen to the naysayers and you forge forward and then you hit infertility and it's like every smack in your face because it's completely out of your control. Yes. You can try your hardest to forge through and then it still might not go your way. So. Yeah. Eventually you partnered. I know you have a wonderful husband. Yes, I did, I did. And did you know as surely as you wanted to be a writer that you also wanted to be a mom? I did. I always knew that I wanted to be a mom and that I wanted to have at least two kids, partly because I was an only child. I have siblings, but they are much, much younger than I am and have siblings. So I grew up as a quote unquote, lonely only, and did not want that. So I was like, zero or two, yeah. two plus. Like there's no, there's no one. And I think you're absolutely spot on with my career journey and my fertility journey were 
sort of very similar in that I had to like, okay, now I've found the guy and now, okay, let's start this plan. Let's start enacting it. In some ways, I feel like that sort of type A thing you use in your career and other parts of your life is exactly the wrong thing to use when you're like trying to get pregnant and like, it just doesn't work like that. No, but you can't help it. You're programmed that way. Exactly. Right. So much of the fertility journey would be easier for so many of us if we could just surrender to the process. Exactly. But so much is out of your control. And the only way to feel like it's in your control is to continue to try to take the reins of it. And my husband and I, we married late. We recognized that we didn't have all the time in the world. So we really jumped on that train immediately because we don't have time to sort of honeymoon, so to speak, and just enjoy each other's company. It's like, look, if we're going to do this, we need to do this. Yeah. We got onto that train and there were definitely some challenges, particularly even once I did get pregnant with my first, the pregnancy itself was so difficult. You know, women have very different experiences being pregnant. And for me, it was a very interesting thing because on the one hand, you're very appreciative and grateful that you are pregnant and you are going to have a child. On the other hand, just the physical toll and what you're going through with morning sickness, which I feel like with pregnancy and fertility and all of it, there's so many misnomers. It doesn't just happen in the morning morning, for a number of people. Why do we call it that? Right. So my mind was personally, mine was 5 p.m. sickness. It just hit every day at 5 p.m. But I remember when I wanted to be pregnant so badly, I'm like, who cares if I get sick? Like I'll throw up for the next nine months if I have to, because I want it so badly. And then you're actually going through it and you're like, yeah, this isn't actually okay. This is horrible. This is horrible. Just because you wanted it so bad doesn't make it any easier to go through. No, it was, I was sick, very sick during the first trimester. I was told that often that sickness ends by the second trimester. And so I was like, please let that be the case. I'm literally like counting down the days. Like, please, when I hit the second trimester, make this go away. Because of the sickness, I was constantly craving sort of comfort food, something that would try and make me feel better. Of course, it never worked. So I was eating a lot of like chicken soup or noodles or bread or something like to try and feel better, not feel nauseous. And what happened the second trimester is the nausea did go away, but I developed terrible allergies. Terrible. So I was allergic to gluten, broke out in itchy hives. I was literally tearing off my skin, like just itching so badly, could not get any relief. And I was miserable. And I was also working full time. At the time, I was on The Good Wife. And the writer's room, the other writers, my colleagues, and everyone was very supportive. It was mostly men in the room. And sure, for The Good Wife. (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) But what was funny is that they used my pregnancy as an excuse to be like, I think we should get donuts. Should we get donuts? I think Erica needs donuts. <laughs> I love it. You're like, so I can't even I, eat those. I'm allergic to them. <laughs> so, if I started getting into like my sixth month or so, 
they were starting to say, uh, you got to have this baby because I'm gaining so much weight. <laughs> 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 Everybody in the room was gaining weight. Yeah. Uh, so, I love it. Sympathy weight. Sympathy weight. It's nice. Sympathy weight. So I was going into an office every day, sitting in the writer's room, doing all of that. And I was starting to feel very, and again, going through physically, not having the best of time. It was starting to take a toll. So by the time I was, my due date was December 31st. I was going to have a New Year's Eve baby. And by October, I was really starting to feel it. I was on script at a certain point and feeling like... On script, meaning you're part of the writer's room sometimes, but then you get your actual episode where the written by credit's going to go to you. Right, exactly. And I was feeling very stressed, just Mm -hmm. very stressed by this point. And I remember thinking like, I I just got to get to the holidays. Like if I can just get to the holidays... It'll be okay. And I went to bed one night. My husband was out of town. And I woke up in the middle of the night and it appeared that my water had broke. And by this time I was, I think I was only like 28 or 29 weeks or something. So it was scary. I was scared. I drove myself in the middle of the night to the hospital. My poor mother-in-law was like, why did you call us? And I was like, but again, it was just my like, I got to do this. And like, you know, independent, like I can do this. Took myself to the hospital. They have to test to see whether or not your water hasn't indeed broken. And, And the response that I got was like, this happens to women all the time. It's probably not what you think it is, you know. So I'm like, okay, maybe I'm just over that. Did that make you feel better or did that make you feel dismissed or maybe in the moment better, but now dismissed? I think I was so anxious that the whole thing that I, I'm not even sure um, mm-hmm. if I, I don't necessarily think that I felt like I was being dismissed, but there was a part of me that wanted to be believe so badly that they were right and that yeah. there was nothing to worry about that I think at the time I took it as, They're trying to make me feel better. And they are probably right that this is probably nothing. And then the test comes back and they were like, no, your water broke. You're here. (laughs) Oh, my God. You have to stay here on bed rest and we have to try and keep this baby in because it's too soon. So it was actually a kind of now looking back on it, an interesting sort of adventure because you're put into this very nice special ward of the hospital, of the maternity ward. And it's just women who are on bed rest. Mm. And some of them, it felt like going to like a women's prison or something, but just way nicer because yeah. they're like, how, how long are you in for? <laughs> you <Right. know? laughs> when someone new comes on, they're all excited and they're interested to tell you like, I've been here three months. I've been here, you know, that kind of right. thing. And they don't bang the bars of the bed when, when you walk in, you know, it's the only difference. <laughs> totally different. Totally different. Yeah. Because all we have is really, we can't go anywhere and we can just sort of socialize with each other. So it was wheeled into each other's rooms, kind of, because you're just trying to keep this baby in. 
That's oh my all. gosh. Because I'm thinking um, to myself as you're saying this that you need to write a show about this called Bed Rest. And right <laughs> when you said prison, I'm like, it kind of reminds me like Orange is the New Black because you're in the beds. And, but then we all go back to your backstory of how you got there, you know? Yeah, exactly. I love exactly. It. And because everyone has a story as to yeah. how they got there, how long they've been there. And, you know, and you gasp when the woman that comes in and says, I've been here six months. You know, you're like, ah! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So, oh um, so it was an interesting kind of time, but it was also just brought because you yeah. are, at least for me, I was just so anxious. Am I going to be able to keep this baby in long enough so that he can come out? I did know I was having a boy so that he could come out, you know, healthy and strong and all those things. And on the one hand, I was so tired and I needed rest and I got rest, but I was also couldn't appreciate it because I was so anxious yeah, and bored. I was going yeah. out of my mind. Of course. And the hospital did not have the best television hookup. Mm. So the offerings were very slim. It was pretty much just broadcast television. And it sent me to through an existential crisis because I kept seeing the same commercials over and over and over and over. Uh. And I was like, what am I doing? This is what I do? Right. Create this, you know, material just for that in between these commercials? Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting that that's where you went. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, it's just commercials. That's all it is. Like with a little like, bit of, you know, right. I was just, it, I was just going through it. But again, I was trying to, I think the goal, we were trying to get to like 35 weeks. So I had a ways to go. And, and it seemed to be working for the most part. Things were, had stabilized, like, you know, Baby didn't appear to be in any distress, wasn't going anywhere, was kind of just hanging out. And so I was just going to ride this out. And again, trying to put that same sort of determination into my keeping the baby in kind yeah. of thing than I did with like the way I approached Your other career. Yeah. Then my first child was born on November. <laughs> <laughs> so I started having contractions early that morning. And what that meant was the fluid was just gushing out. Yeah. The nurses, and now this time I definitely felt dismissed because I'm like, I'm having contractions. And when you are on bed rest, they have you hooked up to monitors. Right. Because they are monitoring the baby and the heart rate and all that sort of thing. And they supposedly know if you are contracted. And the machine was saying I was not. Okay. And the nurses kept telling me I was not. Oof. And I was like, I am definitely having contractions because I want this to stop. Yeah. It is painful and I want it to stop. And when my doctor came in, she was like, oh, yeah, you're definitely having contractions. <laughs> we have to do a C-section immediately. Within an hour or two, they were re- wheeling me down to have the C-section. And it was an issue even, I was so determined to hold him in that it was even difficult for her to get, she was like, they thought they were going to have to give me like, knock me out, give me some gas because I was still holding on. You're like punching him in. I was, yeah. And Mm. I couldn't get him out, but eventually they did trying to get me to relax. So I would let go. 
and I could not let go. And finally I did. And he was um, born November 12th <laughs> and he was then in the, in the NICU for several weeks until December 1st is when we got him out of the NICU and were positive that he was okay and going to be healthy and fine and all that kind of thing. But it was, Ooh. yeah. Do you think you've processed, I would call it a birth trauma. Do you think you've processed the birth trauma? Yes, to some degree. I think through some counseling, therapy, yeah. kind yeah. of, you know, talked about the that whole trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, the NICU, I felt like was another just sort of like, ugh, angst written time. Everything's on hold. We're just, you know, we were, my husband and I were visiting the NICU every day. It really took a toll on us. Personal question. You don't have to answer, but were you pumping? Were you breastfeeding in any way? Were, was that, I was, were you nervous about that? What was interesting is that I was pumping and that was going really well. I was producing a lot of milk that I could do. I could produce milk. I could make sure that he had that, but that in itself is like a whole nother ordeal and like getting, packing up the milk to go take it to the hospital and all that sort of thing. But after that experience, I knew that, and my fertility doctor had told me at the time that if I wanted to have another child, I'd probably have to be on bed rest the entire time. Mm. And I knew that that's not going to work out for you. No bueno. No. You're like, my existential crisis is never coming back. I will not ever watch those commercials again. This is not happening. Really quickly, career questions. And then I want to move into your second child. Mm -hmm. Is it horrible that I'm like, did she get her script ever? Like, did you ever get your script? Did you get your credit on Good Wife? I got my credit, but that I have to thank the writers on The Good Wife for that because they took it over for me and just... Because I was still crazily trying to have my husband bring my laptop so that yeah. I could finish. I'll just, I'll just finish it from here. <laughs> I'm good. I got it. <laughs> and, and particularly, we only had one other woman on the show there. She was like, absolutely not. Yeah. Well, the showrunner wasn't the showrunner was a woman too, right? Yeah. Or- Michelle King is. Yeah. A, exactly. But I yeah. get that. I get that when you, when you work so hard for this phase of the career, you don't want to just be like, but I'm just sitting here anyway. Like I can just type, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I yeah. And I, I okay, I want to get into your second child. So you knew at this point, no mass pregnancy in your body. And by the way, you said your husband was out of town when you thought your water broke. Did he make it like was he freaking out? Freaking out. Yeah. He was, he was freaking out more than I was. Yeah. He was a mess. Yeah, because he didn't get the call or my message until that morning. And he was trying to like, I think his friends and colleagues had to like help him get out of town. Like he was just a mess. Yeah. And like, you need to leave and we're going to help you leave here and get back to LA. Okay. So you can be with your wife. And even just getting to the hospital, he was, just like, it was just, he was so anxious and nervous yeah. and yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. And then the morning that your contraction started, like an hour, two hours later, C-section happened. Did he make it for that? He was there for that. Okay, good. She had, he was there. He was in the, in the room with me. 
holding my hand. Yeah. So he was definitely there and we knew it was happening. Okay. And, yeah. Okay. Good, good, good. Did you go back? How did you take time off work after round that one? Was, that was the plan. And then I I I kept saying no to a show running opportunity. I was like, I just had my first baby. Yeah. After, you know, kind of a harrowing experience. There's no way I am show running right now. Well, and, let's break this down for a minute because most people listening probably don't know the dynamics of that the ask of being a showrunner, which for most writers in television is kind of the dream, right? Right. It's what you're aspiring to. It's the top of the peak. Right. Was that the first time you had been offered a showrunning opportunity? Yes. Oof, Erica. Okay. So tell me what's happening in your, in your heart at those moments. And I know, of course, like baby's priority, but how hard was that for you? It was, it was hard because I just felt like I'm not in the mindset right now to take on that responsibility yeah. being a showrunner. This is my first child. It's just, it's just not, it is something that I wanted, but now is not the time. And that's when I learned the power of the word no. Yes. The more I said no, the more they said yes. Mm-hmm. And it got to a point where my husband was like, I think you're doing this. Because I was making them like, no, I'm never going to, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this for this amount of money. I'm not going to do this. But, and when we started to meet those demands, it was sort of like, <laughs> my husband's position was, how can you say no now? Yeah. Uh, you know, even for me, I felt like I had, at the time, I had essentially like a three or four month old. It's like, I'm going to need it, the show shot in Atlanta. I'm going to need my nanny and the baby to come with me. You're going to have to pay for those plane tickets and accommodations. And they're like, okay. Ooh. So I'm like, oh. Right. You can't <laughs> say no. You're no. like, oh God, they're saying yes to everything. Yes. So I ended up that summer running a show. And that was being Mary Jane? Yes. Okay. And it was nuts. It was a tremendous amount of work. I'm also trying to raise my first child Mm -hmm. and having no idea what I'm doing. I'm thankful in that I had a fantastic nanny who came in, was very experienced, and just mothered my child. And my husband picked up a great deal of the slack because I just was too busy. Mm. And I had planned to breastfeed and pump all through, you know, the recommendation was the first year and I was going to do that. And it became unsustainable by, you know, month six. And let me just say that your child is perfectly healthy and fine and eating well and beautiful and grown and all the things. So, okay. Yes. Yeah, it, it was just no way I was going to be able to run a writer's room, pumping, and I, just like it was, it was just too much. Oh, pumping is like a full time job sometimes. A full time job, yeah. Yes. Okay, so in the thick and love and heat of show running, or maybe not love, but maybe love, are you even thinking like I want to have another child at some point? Yes. 
Probably not within that first year. We were just, it was just survival mode. Survival mode, of course. And then by, I think the second year, we started to think about that because we started the process. I think my boys are three years apart. So we started the process fairly early on within the second year after my first son had been born. We went to my doctor and the bed rest thing as a whole, not doing that. So we think surrogacy. I loved my fertility doctor and trusted her so much that her recommendation, she had a, three surrogacy agencies and one was very large sort of corporate. The second was more mid-range and the, the third was boutique agency run by like former surrogate. Mm-hmm. And we went with the middle option. And I feel like my experience of using dating apps helped because, you know, you have to (laughs) (laughs) to write your profile and show a picture of your family (laughs) and why you want a surrogate and what kind of things you're looking for. And, you know, you're trying to like sort of market yourself. I'm worthy of you being my surrogate and that kind of thing. And I think it was only maybe two or three surrogates we had identified as like, oh yes, this is potential. Like we, you know, and my doctor vetoed them either because of health reasons or something like she had very high standards and she vetoed. Wow. And so then we submitted to Renee, who was ended up being my surrogate and she accepted us and chose us and we met and I instantly knew that my baby was going to be in good hands. Mm -hmm. She had this energy that I liken it to like if there is, if you're in the middle of chaos or, you know, a a war breaks out, she would be the person you would hand your baby to Mm -hmm. and know that she's going to take care of them. And she just had that energy. And she said the same about us. Like she instantly liked us. And I am just so thankful for her because once we chose her and we started going through that journey, I had no worries, not Mm. a single worry. I know that if I had tried to carry my son Levi myself, it would have been constant worry. And fear. And there was a part of me that thought, that's probably not going to be good for him. Mm -hmm. To be in a constant state of just anxious. And she took all of that away. And I had no worries Mm -hmm. at all. She was living in Sacramento at the time. And she came down here for the transfer and all that sort of thing. But for the most part, we we visited her in Sacramento and I loved her family. They were, she had two children, was married and had two children and her husband had a great sense of humor about it. I think he told his boss that his, you know, wife is pregnant. And, you know, of course the boss says, congratulations. He's like, well, it's not mine. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And I just found her very fascinating because I had had such a difficult pregnancy with my first. Here was someone who had 
decided when she was like 14 that she wanted to be a surrogate. Wow. And kind of couldn't wait. And I was, we were her first. This was her first time being a surrogate. She had had her two children and knew that they were not going to expand their family any further. And so now it was finally time for her to be a surrogate. And she had been looking forward to this for years. And for me, it was like she was an alien (laughs) because I just couldn't imagine that there was a woman who'd be willing to do this and, and wanted to. Yeah. And sort of craved it. And so I was in awe of her and just how easily she kind of rode through that journey of, Mm -hmm. you know, her body transforming and all that. And God bless her because I teased her and said she made it way too comfortable because Levi did not want to leave. He (laughs) wasn't. I remember. Yeah. I believe the due date was probably like, I'm sure Renee will probably remember, but October 11th or something like that or early October. And he was not born until Halloween. Yeah. And he won her kids Halloween. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so funny because my our kids are born year second and my twins are the same, are six days apart because mine are November 5th and your Levi's Halloween. And they remember Mm -hmm. seeing you. I saw you at a party and I was like, 34 weeks pregnant and I knew you weren't pregnant, but I knew you were, you were expecting your second. And you're like, yeah, we're doing like two weeks and like a month went by and I was like about to go into the hospital. And I'm like, how is it with your one month old? And you were like, well, he's one like day old or one week old or whatever it was. And so they ended up really very close together. Were you stressed out in those final couple of weeks? Were you freaking out? Not really. I, the only thing that was weird about it is that I, Went to Sacramento to for the birth. And because it was supposed to happen in early October, I was there for an eternity. It felt. Oh, you were just waiting and it out. Just Ooh. waiting it out. And I'm, then I just felt badly for Renee because it's like she's still pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And it was getting to the point where they were starting to talk about inducing because it was just going on and on and on and on. And even... Through the birth, I was there when Levi was born and with her. And even then, it was just like he just did not want to come out. So we still talk. Yeah. She is now on her third surrogacy. Wow. And and I I just feel so fortunate to have had her as a surrogate. I really do. I, I just think she's just one of the best people on the planet. So. Yeah. Yes. Just to have had her in my life is, I feel very, very grateful. I love it. Do you know? You're done. You're done with your building for your family, I think. We're done building my family. There, there was a point there where, but yes, we are so done. Okay. Let me ask you one other question. Did you need to make new embryos for Renee or did you have some left over? I had some. So they were, yes, I had some. So I was kind of done with, having to deal with shots and anything having to do with your body, anything having to do with my body. Yeah. That part of it was done. There was Close no for business that Close needed to for be distracted or anything. Yep. It was done. And so that was really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is yeah. a sense of relief in some ways. And yeah. to be fortunate enough to know that you can still build your family. It's great. Yeah, exactly. She lifted this huge burden. I, I feel very, 
appreciative of that. Okay. So you're still writing. You did that showrunner run. So you were able to, with some miracle and a lot of help, balance, have it all, right? What all we aspire to be the showrunner and be a first time mother with a toddler. Yeah. Which is amazing. And I know it was hard and I know it was not easy and you had the support, but you also still did it. And that's pretty incredible. You know, it did. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So just in terms of, you know, life and moving forward, is there any mantra that you repeat to yourself often or saying that you love or cliche that you use that you feel like you carry with you in your work or your life? I think more than anything is just grit. I think when I look back on the things that got me through career-wise, even building my family, all of that sort of thing was just grit and determination. And I have to remind myself of that, that in some ways it is like, I felt like I was like going into battle and you just have to like fight for what you want. And it's important because I feel like sometimes we get into this mode where we feel like I'm a good person. Good things should happen to me. And I'm like, I'm like, no, you're going to war. You have got to fight for what you want. And I feel like my Buddhist practice really helps me with that. I know that that is not what people think of when they think of Buddhism, but that is absolutely sort of the truth of it. Mm -hmm. And it's really helped sustain me and continues to help sustain me as with whatever new obstacle comes up because, you know, they do in life. There's no coasting. So (laughs) I love it. Well, I'm so glad you have the grit. We all are. And I'm glad for your family that you have the grit. Thank you so much for being with me. Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you for having me and listening to my story. Oh, I love your story. God, I love that woman. Thank you, Erica. So I wanted to put Erica's episode out. When it goes to air, it's going to be mid-May 2023. At the time of air, there is no strike deal agreed to between the American Motion Picture Producers Association and the Writers Guild. So this is in the middle of the writer's strike is what I'm trying to say. We are also preparing for the Directors Guild to go on strike. And as a SAG-AFTRA member, I can tell you that we got a notice in the mail today to please vote yes in the mail, who gets mail, in the email, in our emails, to please vote yes on a strike as well. So the entire entertainment business is about to go on strike. And I know that if you don't live in this bubble of the world, it might be a little bit confusing and meaningless. I do live in this bubble of the world and it's confusing. So I wanna give a breakdown of what's going on in a very simple way. Let's say you're the head of Netflix and this is a complete guesstimate, but you're sitting at home on the weekends, binging TV with $40 million in your bank account because you have amazing programming that is binge worthy. Now let's say you're a genius who created some of that binge worthy television and you're being paid 50, maybe 60, maybe $100,000, okay? Then you have to pay your agent and your manager and your lawyer. So let's say you take home 80,000 and then you have to pay taxes. Let's say you take home $60,000 and you have a husband and two children and a family to take care of and a home. $60,000 for the whole year is not gonna cut it, especially while Mr. Kush Netflix is sitting at home in his $40 million in his bank account a year. So I just wanted to break this gap down for you and explain that that's what's being fought for. What the writers have asked for is minuscule. The head of Netflix, and I'm just using him as an example, it could be 
many people could cut their salaries in half even and be able to give a living wage to many of the creatives who they're making money off of, but they don't want to strike that deal. So I just think about Erica's career trajectory and I'm almost wistful at how beautiful it was and how she was able to live out her dream in so many ways. And I know she's not done. She wants to keep going, but the way things are going right now, it's really scary. So I hope that explains it more. Back to the fertility front. I also wanted to answer a question that came in about last week's episode with Dr. Escobar on the definition between gestational carrier and surrogate. We did briefly talk about it, but it was two people sort of in the biz. And so I think we might've skimmed over it. The term for when someone else carries your genetic material is often referred to as surrogate. But to be honest, a surrogate in its true definition is actually the egg of the person carrying the baby and the sperm which has been inseminated And then that baby, once born, will go to another family. So it actually is genetic material from the person carrying the baby going to a different mother and probably father. Whereas a gestational carrier takes a full embryo, so a couple's egg and sperm, the embryo is made and then put inside a gestational carrier is the technical term for the person who carries that baby to term. In all of our episodes and in most of the world, we just refer to the carrier as a surrogate. Because in this country, what Dr. Escobar was clarifying last week is that it's pretty impossible, I think he said it's completely impossible these days, to have any genetic relation to the baby you carry, because then the laws are too strict for you to be able to give that baby to somebody else. So this day and age, surrogate and gestational carrier are pretty much used interchangeably and the default is surrogate, but they are actually two different things. And I'll be honest, I didn't know that until very late into my fertility journey. So I thought maybe you'd wanna know too. I really hope you enjoyed today. Thank you so much for listening. If you love us, please give us a five-star rating. Please tell your friends, please subscribe, all of the things. And I can't wait to see you again next week. We have a treat then too. Have a great week. Bye.